it depends on on the industry i think some industries have ex- much more expensive loans than other industries would so in the saas industry it depends on your size so it could be 22% if you're making 500 grand a year it could, it should be you know 17 18% if you're making 3 million bucks a year so it just kind of depends i would say on uh on what industry you're in. I, I wouldn't know if you were a retail store and well, it might get cheaper. We have no assets to lend against, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no, there's nothing to collateralize with software. Cause you can't just, you know, say, well, this software is worth something. They're like, mm-hmm. you mean all those ones and zeros? How do I sell that? I don't understand. Whereas if you're a retail store, maybe you can collateralize your inventory. Hey, it's Matt. And this is pass the secret sauce. Today's guest is Steve Benson. Steve is the founder and CEO of Badger Maps. After receiving his MBA from Stanford, Steve was Google Enterprise's top sales executive in 2009. In 2012, Steve founded Badger Maps, a software company that helps field salespeople optimize their routes and schedules to save time and to be on time so that they can sell more. Steve is also the host of the Outside Sales Talk podcast, where he interviews industry experts on their top sales tips. My uh, my mom did not work when I was younger. She uh, she stopped working when I was born and started working again when I was like thirteen. And she's a, a, a pretty good cook, so she would generally cook dinner uh, for me and my sister. My dad worked in the city. This is Chicago, and and so he was often he would often not get home till nine o'clock or so. But sometimes he'd be at home by seven in time for when the kids were eating dinner. So it just depended on, you know, if you had to work a lot or, or had meetings or, or what. But we had a lot of full family dinners with all four of us and then a lot of just the three of us. Excellent. And do you feel like you were exposed to entrepreneurialism at a young age? Or was this something that maybe your time spent at Google, you sort of developed that taste um, for? Yeah, I guess I, I always kind of had a taste for it. I, I think my dad was an entrepreneur. Well, in a sense, he started a small law firm, just him and a couple other lawyers. And so he had to run that business. I guess he's the product in that scenario, but so it's a little different more, but, but he was running a business. And so I was exposed to that from, from very early on. My mom did a lot of like, she's a, an art, tra- art teacher by trade. So she had a lot of little businesses making different artistic knickknacks that she would sell at like crafts fairs. So I was always going to going to those craft fairs with her and watching her sell stuff to people. I started a, a fireworks business when I was about 12. I, uh, so fireworks were illegal in Illinois, but that was to sell them. You could still order them by mail because then, you know, mail doesn't, isn't regulated by the States regulated by the fed. So I guess is why they're allowed to do it, but they companies in Indiana could send fireworks to people in Illinois. So I would order boxes of fireworks and, sell them to my classmates and I was chewing up everybody's lunch money there for a while. That's funny. So were you bringing the fireworks, you know, to school in your backpack or how, how what was the distribution model there? Well, I would bring them to school or people would just come by my house. Yeah. They, my parents thought it was pretty weird. People would just like leave it over and call, <laughs> hang out in my room with me for like 10 minutes and then leave. They, <laughs> 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 I think they thought I was you know, selling weed or something, but I was only 12. So they, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure they were watching that closely, but, or I just like meet people outside, I guess it was, was a more common thing. Cause I think they, they started asking questions. And so I changed my distribution model. I had a little soda business too, for a while. 
never got high on my own supply on that one, but uh, the fireworks, I, I blew off a lot of fireworks, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the soda business, I would just swing by the, the grocery store and get a case of soda and stick it in my, in a bag and another case of soda and put it on my lap and bike that to school. And then I would sell them for, well, depending on, depending on the buyer, anywhere between a, a buck to two bucks a can, but I was buying them for like 14 cents a can. So it yeah. was like, you know, generic soda. Yeah. Great, great margin there. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Not as good as fireworks, but I was still pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So that, uh, that kind of got you through high school, I would assume, or middle school, I guess. That was middle school business. Yeah. I think they, I, I did get suspended once in high school for, I was selling get out of school free passes from a dentist's <laughs> office that I had that I'd get a little grubby hands on. Those 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 had a those fetched a higher price point. I, I got I got caught for that one though because about twenty kids who were all friends with each other were all going to the same dentist dentist the same day. So they caught onto that one pretty fast and didn't have to shake many people to to, to catch me. So that was a yeah. short lived business, but you know, <laughs> but yet short lived but profitable. So I, yeah. had to, I had to take a few days off school on that one. That's funny. That is great. So you went to school for at Stanford. What was your major when you started? So I went to the University of Wisconsin for undergrad, and then Ah. I was at Stanford for business school. So it was an MBA. Very cool. And did that lead you directly into Google then when you graduated? No, I went to Stanford. I went to IBM and then a software company called Autonomy, which ended up getting purchased by HP for way too much money. But that's that's another story (laughs) for (laughs) HP. And And so I went from HP, so I went from Autonomy to Google. Okay. So those other companies kind of gave you the foundation to jump into Google and obviously you had great success at Google. Could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you learned at the other companies and then how that translated into Google and how you're able to achieve what you did at Google? Yeah. I mean, I I had some some lucky years when I was at Google where I, I managed to sell some software. The trick there was in terms of what I had learned earlier. I mean, I when I was at Autonomy, it was a very independent place, so it was really you know they really treated it like as a software salesperson there, you're kind of running your own little business, very little overhead support from you know no account based marketing. They had like you know kind of corporate marketing and you know air cover, but nothing that would like you know really generate leads or or anything like that. So I guess I learned there to be pretty aggressive and do the things to get attention and get deals done, which then when I took, when I went to Google, which was a much nicer environment in terms of, you know, a great marketing team, great support, great product, kind of no brainer product at the time. I was focused on their software products, not, you know, the main thing they do, the ads on the internet, but like I was mostly working with the whole Google Apps suite and the Google uh, Google Maps API, and they have some security products I was working with. And, and a lot of them had a really nice, they were positioned very well against existing options for people. Like if you Lotus Notes for your email as a company, it was kind of a no-brainer to move to, to Google Apps at the time. I mean, you could have moved to Microsoft too. That also would have been a no-brainer. But so it was just that was a good time to be there. I think it was, you know, they had a product that was really well positioned and really looked, was doing great in the market. But yeah, I guess... I, I, by bringing, it was also kind of a soft place. Like it wasn't very, you know, not very aggressive and not, you know, not, people weren't working that hard. And I think I, I brought the things that I had learned in a, in a very kind of aggressive lean environment to that environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what types of customers were you going after for Google? Who were, who's your target audience? 
so uh, when I was at Google, look, it was it was uh, I, I was in charge of large deals, like for going into certain states. So I, I was covering like twelve states in the country for large deals. So you know, a company that had three thousand employees and, and was you know needed needed email for all of them was the type of customer that I was going after. Or it could have been a company that needed a, a lot of Google Maps API consumption, regardless of size, that you know, that that was kind of broken up more by by need. Mm-hmm. And and Badger Maps, I, I think that was probably your next step after Google. Is that correct? Yeah. So I left left Google in 2000 12 in January. I had to stay, stay till the end of the year to get my bonus. And so January 6th of 2012, Badger was born. And so Badger Maps, it was uh, it's a software that helps field salespeople. And I had, because my background was in field sales, and then I had worked a lot with the mapping products at Google and Badger built on top of some of those mapping products. I knew a lot about the way you would make a piece of software like this. And I also knew a lot about the problems that field salespeople face. And so I really had the, a pretty clear idea of the first five years or so of what I would want to build uh, to solve the problems field salespeople have. And so I started doing that in 2012 and now we're, we're a got 70 employees and we're, we're growing fast and, and we're, we've solved a ton of problems for field salespeople. And when I say field salespeople, I mean like, people that go out into the, into the field to meet with their customers face to face. So like mm-hmm. real common in medical device sales or pharmaceutical sales or, you know, selling tires to tire stores or beer to bars. Those are mm-hmm. all face to face meetings and relationships. And that's a very different sales experience than selling something over the phone or selling something e-commerce or in a retail environment. They have mm-hmm. a, a very unique set of problems that mobile devices uh, with maps on them allowed us to solve. That's yeah, that's interesting. So again, one of our companies were in real estate, and it is very much so you know relationship based. You know, you're always mm-hmm. you know talking to investors, you're talking to brokers, trying to find deals, trying to find money. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I would imagine that it's very much so the same. That could be a, a product that a real estate investor could potentially be interested in. Oh, for sure. I mean, some some of the biggest real estate companies in the country are our customers of ours. So they, you know, there's a real estate company that has 450 reps out in the field and they use Badger wow. and, and a lot of like individual people do too. Cause yeah. because of our ability to, it's, it's a, it's got, it, we don't advertise. Like if you go to our website, it's like field sales, field sales, field sales, which, but really it's the problems that we're solving for field salespeople, a real estate agent or a real estate investor actually have the same exact problem set. It's just, it's not a customer. It's not a doctor that you're putting on the map. It's a piece of real estate that has unique attributes. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about when you decided that you were going to make this jump to, to Badger. It doesn't sound like you had any coding ability. Correct. No, no. I, I my background was, was all business, you know, not not technical at all. So it was really that that first hire of of someone that was going to start building the actual software was was a very important one, and and the business was bootstrapped at first. So you know, I needed to find someone who was I, I could only afford one, and they had to be mm-hmm. great to get us out of the gate. And, mm-hmm. and so and, and I I lucked out there. I mean, I you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I'm 
a, a brilliant hire of people, but I, I ended up getting real lucky on that one. Yeah, that's great. And did you pick that from your network or did you have some type of a service or something like that that you used to find that person? Or is that, again, maybe no, a I, Google connection? I, I did that. My, I, I found him on LinkedIn. Okay. Based on a very specific set of skills that in LinkedIn lets you, lets you get real specific when, in your searches. So I was able to really zoom in on, on a very particular person. Interesting. Excellent. So now you are off to the races. You have your programmer that's building this for you. What's the next step? What do you do? Obviously, you have to get customers in. At what point mm -hmm. did you start reaching out to them? Did you build an MVP? Here's basic functionality and then go out or? No, I, I, built, a, uh, I built a picture of what the MVP would look like. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and this is a big advantage that our company had when we were a startup over other people is that we had a professional salesperson on staff, me. And most, most companies with two people can't, can't and shouldn't pay for that. I mean, it's, a, it's an expensive resource, obviously, but you know, I was free to me. So, mm -hmm. uh, But I, I was able to reach out to way more customers than people normally would at our stage and, and kind of you know, run you know, enterprise level marketing and sales plays and get the concept in front of a lot more people, have conversations with a lot more people than I otherwise would have been able to, which both helped us tune exactly what we we're building and going to bring to market because I understood exactly what was needed to make those first sales. And also it allowed me to have a bunch of people lined up when things were ready to be sold. So, and I, and I think that's so important because so many people don't validate that someone will actually purchase their software and they don't get enough, they don't pre line people up to purchase their software. And so it ends up really extending the run, the adoption curve runway that you would otherwise have needed. And that's not just in the software industry, but I would imagine that's in any, any industry, you know, to, if you build up a bunch of demand before you actually, if you're importing stuff, if a bunch of demand has already been built by the time the stuff reaches the, the port from, from wherever it was being made, if you, if you've got that demand already, you're going to sell it a lot quicker. And for us, you know, it, it was, it was not only lining up a lot of people, but having conversation, Hey, I'm, you know, this is what we're building right now and showing and explaining it to them. This is when this is approximately when it'll be done. It'll be approximately four months. Is that something that you'd be interested in, in purchasing at that time? It, you know, if, if it, if it does what I'm saying, it's going to do. And, and that's a different question than, are you interested in this? It's mm -hmm. actually locking it. Yes, I'd, I'd be interested in purchasing it. And then you, the next step is for how much. And, and the way I would do that was, okay, so and I haven't done this for a while. This, this talk path, what, what, what did I say? I had, I had this down at the time. It was, uh, it, it was like, okay, so we don't know. We don't know exactly what we're going to be charging for this in a year, but it's going to be around you know, let's just say a million bucks a year for this product. But, you know, if, if you lock in now and, and say that you will buy it and then you actually do buy it in four months when it's ready and you don't have to sign anything today, but if you purchase it in four months, I'll be giving it to you for a hundred grand. I think okay. in a, a year after that, it'll be going for a million, but your, your price will be grandfathered in a hundred grand. And it doesn't matter if you're eventually going to charge a million or not, because you know, you've kind of couched it and saying, you know, we've got a lot to figure out here, but, but you can get people on board early and, and agree to the price. And you can transact pretty quickly if you set it up like that. 
Yeah, that makes that makes great sense. So you fast forward four months now. What did it look like when you launched this product? Did that go well, or were there issues along the way? You know, a lot of server crashes typically happen. Any anything like that? Any bumps? For sure. Yeah, I mean, building software is messy, and and, and the stuff crashes all the time and goes down all the time early on. It's, and it's why people pay less to to, uh, to access software as their as the early customers. There are some benefits they get to guide where the product goes they get a, a say in you know order and and what things they would most be what, what's most important to them but you know they they on on the balance i think yeah i mean there's there's problems but nothing nothing ever too serious happened we would have i think i think we were down for two days once but that was you know in 2013 or something that it probably took five years to wring all the kinks out of the software and now we have processes in place as we release things that we, we do release things and they break, but that's in a test environment. And so we catch it before we release it to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So, so we've kind of, by, by, by our size, you've kind of solved, uh, solved those problems with automated testing and, and processes. Mm-hmm. And so you obviously started, you had a good book of business launching this. What was it like when you first started to realize, you know what, there really is something here was that was that very early on that that realization came about or is that not until years into it that you know what this is actually going to really this is really going to work yeah i I think i think in january of 2014 i did my first deal over 300k and i it was, you know i and and i i needed that 300k too Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh so yeah, it was January of 2014, and that was a three-year paid-up-front deal. So someone someone bought three years of the software by by at once. I, I knew at that point that there was a lot a lot more business out there. There was nothing especially unique about that company. There were a lot of other companies like it. This was worth it enough to them that they were willing to plop down 300k for a for a, piece, a product that a four-person startup at that point had built, and so. You know, I guess we were two about two years into our life at that point, and that's that's when I knew we were we were going to make it. Yeah, excellent. So right now we're in this sort of black swan event, and there's there's always going to be different problems that are going to pop up in the market. What are you guys doing today to hedge yourself, your company as much as you can against some of the unknowns that are being presented right now. Do you have any, any tips or advice that you guys are starting to look at or how you're looking at your business moving forward through turbulent times? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there's a few things you can do when times are turbulent. You know, if it's a sudden event, like COVID, but any sudden event really, you can, where people are, a whole bunch of people are gonna quit at once. You can try to get them to not quit by making them an offer like, oh, okay, for when they call to quit, you can say, well, uh, what if we give you two or three months at 50% off and then it'll adjust back up, but that'll get us through this time. And because they don't wanna, you know, go through the brain damage of turning their thing off and then setting it all back up again, that may, make it worth it to them to, to, to not actually cut it. And so you keep money coming in. Mm-hmm. You can, you can go through all your costs with a, with a fine tune, 
tooth comb, comb obviously. You can try to, you know, if you if you're month to month on your lease right now, you, you can pull out of your lease. They're not going to release the thing to, to anyone else right now. If anything, in a turbulent time, no one's going to be able to release anything after that, right? For mm-hmm. a little while at least, so you can shut your lease off and then, and maybe even negotiate to leave your stuff in place. Maybe you have to toss it in the storage or something. You could you can go to your vendors and providers, your upstream vendors and providers, and and ask to quit and see what they offer you. I mean, just like just like we would offer someone fifty percent off for three months, maybe your maybe your vendors and providers would do the same thing. So anything that is quittable to call and and, and say you want to quit, and if it's truly if you truly don't need the thing right now, you should actually just quit, right? Mm-hmm. As long as there's not too much friction and turning it off and turning it back on again. But but yeah, I mean. I, Slicing any unnecessary things like, I mean, trips that were going to happen or conferences that were going to happen, that's kind of obvious to make sure to get rid of those costs. But also, and if, if there's something, a lot of things that would have made sense in good times, maybe don't make sense now. So you can look to, to cut those. Like the, if you were going to do something to acquire customers and it was going to cost this much, well, maybe because now you think you're going to acquire way fewer customers, you just don't do that thing. You can if you have to really start making cuts to headcount or to employees, you can, I guess, you know, I guess obviously you pick the things that aren't necessary or the lowest performing employees first, but another thing you could do to save money on headcount, which is a big, the main expense for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. You can tell people, Hey, we're going to cut salaries by 20%, but Fridays are now off. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of, relatively fair trade for people and i think most people will get that's not a bad deal for anybody mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah I and mean, there's there's just in general the cost of acquiring a new business will rise and so a lot of things become not worth doing and and so you, it's important to make sure you keep the business you have and do what you can for those customers perhaps you can look to shift services and shift your resources into doing something that you normally wouldn't have done. Maybe it's got a weaker margin, but it'll keep the lights on or, and for some people, I mean, we've seen this, there are new uses of your, your company or product for, so for usually we service field salespeople, but right now there's doctors that are making home visits and they actually have the same problem as a field salesperson. A lot of the same problems we solve, a hospital group or a healthcare group that's sending doctors or nurses around to people's homes to give them care. They need, they need us just the same way as a salesperson would normally use us to go around and, and do what they do in the field. We've seen restaurants that are starting up delivery services, use our product to figure out where they're, where the people are that, that are buying their food and then run the, you know, kind of route the deliveries and the cars there. So di- different looking for different types of use cases or things that you can do, with your firm to make money in these times is, is you know, a, a great idea too, to a thought exercise that everybody should go through. Mm-hmm. And then I guess we, sh- we should talk about debt too. I mean, obviously that's news. If, when you're in tough times that, and, and if it's going to be a short downturn for whatever reason, debt is a great way to, to get through. And I could discuss what the gotchas are around debt deals. I've, I've done, I've worked in debt a lot, so I, I can speak to that if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe make a, a quick framework around what exactly you're saying debt. I'm assuming that it's that you would get a loan from either a bank or some type of institution, maybe even a private investor. And like you said, some of the gotchas or some of the things to look out for in that process. 
Yeah. So, you know, debt is anyone that can, that can loan you money. Could be a supplier, could be a customer, could be more commonly it's a, a bank or but banks. Banks aren't, in the, aren't really in the business of loaning that much money usually. That there, a lot of lending happens on private markets. I mean, obviously big companies have bonds, but private lenders have stepped into a lot of spaces in the last you know, 10 years to, to make loans. Banks have lines of credit that's those aren't that's not a huge loan really and, and banks make direct loans although a lot of times those are pg that personally personally guaranteed loans is what the banks awful often do where they want to give you a loan against something that you're guaranteeing like they'll they'll say okay well we'll give you this loan for a million bucks but you as the business owner have to personally guarantee that this is going to get paid back so if the company isn't able to pay, pay it back then you are personally in the line and that means you know your car your house stuff like that so banks aren't necessarily or anyone asking for a pg is not the first group i would prefer to go to private investors tend to be better i mean in this downturn environment so i've got a lot of private debt with investors and they're thrilled right now because they're they make 15 percent on those loans and if they otherwise didn't have those loans. They would have been. They probably would have had it exposed to the market and lost thirty-five percent. So, you know, there's a fifty percent swing there. They've, they've got fifty percent more money than they would have if they had if, if they weren't making debt investments. So, it's, debt's attractive to people right now if they believe that that you'll be able to pay the business, pay them back. Obviously, so there's nothing about your business that makes them fundamentally think, ah, this thing could could actually go bankrupt and not be able to pay its debts. So, as long as they believe the company will be around for the next, you know three years, they should, they, they should be willing to make a three-year uh, debt loan to you. And if there's market fears, it's a, then it's probably a great time to do that. And a fair rate for debt can be anywhere. A bank would give you 5% all the way up to 22% for like a specialty lender. And then there's a bunch of usury lenders. You know, the, there's a bunch of lending platforms out there that charge like, you know, 30 to 40%, which is pretty aggressive. Yeah. Now, the problem is that there's no, the reason they do that, you can't do that with consumers, obviously. There's, there's protections in place for consumers, but there's not, those protections don't exist for companies. So they, they can charge what they want. It's a contract. You got to pay it. Whereas they're just not allowed to go over a certain amount for consumers. I'm not sure what that amount is, but I think it's right around what credit cards are at. Okay. And do you have any advice on finding what lenders, investors would be best for you? Yeah, I mean, ask around to people in the space who, like for us, I mean, in, in the SaaS software space, there's 20 lenders that go after specifically SaaS software business to sell loans to. There's in a lot of spaces, there's someone that kind of specializes in that space and that's kind of their area. And so, I, you know, I'd ask around to bankers and investment bankers and lawyers and people that kind of, other business executives in that are kind of in the space will we'll know who these guys are. I mean, you can Google it too. I mean, if, if, if I Googled SaaS lenders, I'd be able to find, if I didn't know who they were, I'd be able to find a lot of them. They would, probably not all of them, but enough. Mm-hmm. One tricky thing with Googling them is a lot of these guys are relatively small and often a few of them will take the lion's share of the SEO juice. And so something, a two person mom and pop lending shop could be lending 60 million bucks. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. And they don't, they haven't invested anything in SEO or their web presence. They can be a little hard to find, harder to find than you guess, but there are, making loans has been a big business as of late. And so there's a lot of lenders and a lot of them are 
looking great right now because mm -hmm. their returns have been returning and everything else melted. So uh, there are gotchas, things to watch out for when you're taking a loan, I would keep in mind. You want to make sure you're not getting a loan that the, and it's all, there's a lot of legalese terms in a loan contract, but they, they actually really matter. This isn't like signing off on your, you know, your iTunes account. You want to really go over these terms and probably with the help of a lawyer or someone who knows what they're doing, but some terms to really watch out for. Um, you want to make sure the lender can't just call the loan back. Meaning if you borrow a million bucks, they can't just let you know you know, in a month and a half, Hey, we want that million bucks back. You're like, Hey, mm -hmm. I, I spent it. Like I, I thought this was a three year loan, but they could have a term in there that they get to call it back whenever they want or else bad things happen. Mm -hmm. In general, the whole covenants section is you gotta, you gotta look out for, they can have liquidity covenants. That's, that's one banks love you know, So they're making you a million dollar loan, but by the way, you have to have a million or a half million dollars in their, in your checking account with that bank at all times. So, I know that sounds crazy. You're like, wait, if you're loaning me a million dollars, but I can't spend a million dollars, what's the point? And the mm -hmm. point is there is no point. <laughs> but yep, yep. but, but I mean, it's not illegal for them to make that offer to you, but it's a bad, you, there's no reason for you to take it. So that's, that's one to watch out for, especially with banks. Their covenants around their ability to speed up paying your, paying the loan back or changing the percentage that you're paying back if certain conditions occur, like maybe your revenue slow, it, should your revenue slow or contract for three months in a row, then you've got to start paying us back at this rate or at this speed because of that. And that's a, you want to make sure you negotiate terms like this out. And by the way, any term with a loan is negotiable. They'll tell you, oh, we can't negotiate that. But the, everything, they're giving you money for a return. Like everything, from the amount of money to the return to every single covenant is, is negotiable. EBITDA co covenants they'll put in place in SAS, like MRR, multiple covenants. Like if you're MRR, which is another kind of a monthly recurring revenue, it's just a way of, if everyone is paying you monthly, what is, that's your monthly recurring revenue. Well, how much money you make this month if every single customer paid you monthly mm -hmm. and they, so they can put a, they could not only have a revenue covenant, but they could also have an MRR covenant. That can change industry by industry, obviously. Early payback penalties, that's a really common one. They'll get you on that. They'll, they'll say, well, yeah, if you pay this back early, you also have to pay back all the interest that you would have paid for the entire life of the loan. So if you, that means if you get a loan at 20% from someone, a year and a half goes by and you want to refi that loan because you find someone else who will give you a 15% loan, if you actually make the change and swap the two, you know, swap that lender out, then you have to pay them the full term of the loan for four years at 20% in order to, the penalty is as a penalty to do that. Mm -hmm. And we'll just slide that in as like a two sentence, you know, condition in the contract. But that's one that's definitely, you can negotiate away. They can block you getting other loans and with any other, they, they can set any condition on that. They can block you from getting loans that are, above them, meaning they get paid back before them, or like you, they'll block you from being able to make a payment on a loan until their loan is completely satisfied. They could block you from getting a loan over a certain rate. I mean, they can, they can take any attribute of a loan and, 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 write, and write it in that it's blocked, and that's pretty common. Interesting, um, yeah. And, it's, and it is reason, I mean, to, to some, like they, if, if a bank is making you a loan, it's, it's reasonable that they don't want you to be able to bring in like a usury lender at 40% that gets paid back at the same rate as they do because that puts at risk your ability to pay them back. 
right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I, I don't think it's reasonable for you to put in place a lender beneath them in the stack, you know, meaning that they get paid back before this new lender should you get into trouble or should that, I think you should always be able to bring in a loan that's of a lower percent than they're giving you. I think that's fair too. But all this, these are all like cases that you can negotiate. I'm trying to think if I can think of anything else. <laughs> How do lenders screw you? 101. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. That's a perfect name. <laughs> so let me think here. Some I've seen loans. I've seen lenders say you can only use our loan to pay certain things back. And those certain things, like one I, one I can think of is, as a lender that only lets you pay for marketing type expenses like Google or Facebook ads or Apple ads. And so that's a stream of income, but you have to borrow all the money up front and start paying your paying interest on all the money up front. So you have to buy, borrow, if you're spending, it's a six month loan and so it's a short, very short term loan. It's for $120,000 because you're paying $20,000 to, to marketing expenses of, of advertising expenses of that nature a month. So you get the whole $120,000, but you're only allowed to use that $120,000 on marketing expenses. You know that you can only actually use it on this stream, on, on this $20,000 stream. So you borrowed $120,000 for six months, you're paying 20% interest on it, but all you can do is pay off marketing expenses well, all that's actually doing is it's a $20,000 loan because you know, the marketing pays itself back at, that, you know, at the end of that month and you know, you put, put a dollar in the funnel, hopefully a dollar 20 comes out the bottom, hopefully two bucks, but you know, depends efficiency of the marketing, but you end up, you're basically borrowing 20 grand, but paying for 120 grand. So that's a really bad mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a, there, so sometimes you think you're getting money, but you're like, wait, if when I do the math, I'm actually not getting anything and they're just getting a really killer deal. I mean, and a lot of times the, the lenders that advertise the most are the worst lenders because you know, they're, they're able to advertise a lot because when they actually get a customer, it's worth a ton to them. Whereas, you know, some mom and pop shop making loans for 15% and they're loaning out 60 million bucks to a certain industry that they think is is you know, very highly likely to be able to pay them back and give, give them a 15% return, they might hardly be advertising at all. Mm -hmm. So you gotta be, who you get a loan from is very important. And do you see the 15% return sort of as being the industry standard that a lot of the lenders are looking for? Or is that sort of all over the board as well? That's all over the board. It just depends. It depends on on the industry, I think. Some industries have ex much more expensive loans than other industries would. So in the SaaS industry, it depends on your size. So it could be 22% if you're making 500 grand a year. It, could, it should be you know, 17, 18% if you're making 3 million bucks a year. So it just kind of depends, I would say, on, uh, on what industry you're in. I, I wouldn't know if you were a retail store. and Well, it might get cheaper. We have no assets to lend against, right? Like mm -hmm. there's, no, there's nothing to collateralize with software because you can't just you know, say, well, this software is worth something. They're like, mm -hmm. you mean all those ones and zeros? How do I sell that? I don't understand. Whereas if you're a retail store, maybe you can collateralize your inventory. And you can get a loan against that, or if you're a you know, trucking company, you can you can use your trucks as collateral. Companies like that can go to banks and get money, mm -hmm. whereas if you're a SaaS company, you cannot. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, excellent, Stephen. This has been fantastic. Where, if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you or any of your products or anything, where, where would you suggest that they go? 
me, best place to find me is on LinkedIn, probably so Stephen Benson company's called Badger Maps. If you're interested in the, the company and learning more there because you're in field sales, badgermapping.com. Podcast is podcast for field salespeople specifically, not surprisingly. And it's called Outside Sales Talk. So you can find that on all the platforms. But but yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're buying Badger, mention this podcast and we'll give you two months free just for enduring listening to me. (laughs) (laughs) It was good. It was good. (laughs) No, I certainly appreciate that, Stephen. No, this is, this has been good. And I'm sure that we will keep in touch. I actually, again, a lot of the listeners are uh, in real estate. Uh, I have a background in real estate, so I'm going to check it out, you know, for us being able to track all of these things. So so this is fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Absolutely. Well, hey, it's, uh, it's been great to chat and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.